Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 200 of the Foxy Podcast Show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, I'm pleased to welcome Mark Harwood back to the show. Mark has a long history of publishing, distributing, selling, compiling, and creating music in the realms of the experimental and avant-garde. His primary focus over the last decade has been running the excellent Penultimate Press label, which, now based in Berlin, has issued striking contemporary and archival works from the likes of Comer, Triple Negative, Korea Undock Group, Maths Balance Volumes, Small Creel Party, and Jacques Brodier, to name just a few. He's also made some fascinating sound work of his own over the years, too, recently issuing one of his strongest full-length efforts yet with the release of Offering, an album put out under his given name that finds him working closely with his longtime friend and collaborator, Graham Lampkin. On this episode, I chat with Mark about the challenges of operating Penultimate Press in recent years, the making of his album Offering, and the plans that he has for the label in the year ahead, amongst other topics. And since I last spoke with Mark in 2016, he's also gone on to publish several works from the late Danish composer and Fluxus-associated artist Henning Christensen. Mark, in close collaboration with Henning's son, Torbjorn Ruder Christensen, started the Henning Christensen Archive as a means to consolidate all of Henning's vast body of work into one place. As more and more of his work has been published, you're starting to see how truly significant of an artist and thinker that Henning Christensen was. So in the second half of the show, Torbjorn, or Toby as we refer to him, joins Mark and I to discuss his father's history, work, and legacy. And we discuss what it's been like for them combing through the massive amount of recordings and material that Henning left behind and what are some of the future plans for the Henning Christensen archive. Scattered between these interview segments, you'll hear track selections from some recent and forthcoming titles from both Penultimate Press and the Henning Christensen Archive. Before we get into those interview segments, I thought I'd start things off with a few tracks from some newer releases on Penultimate Press, beginning with this piece from Small Cruel Party called Templum.
You know, I was looking through the podcast archives for when you last joined me on the show, and I was thinking it was just a few years ago, but I was surprised it was actually like six years ago. And uh, I guess my how our sense of time has changed <laughs> in the last few years, that's for sure. But um, of course, a lot has changed uh, since you and I last spoke. And one of the big things for you is you made the move from London to Berlin, uh, in the last couple of years. And I guess I don't want to pry into your personal life or anything like that, but uh, just wondering how maybe running Penultimate Press, how your music and other creative pursuits factored into that decision of relocating to Berlin. Uh, yeah, the that, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Let's just be ridiculous from the get-go. I watched this Ginger Baker documentary um, yesterday that uh, Graham recommended. And within that, uh, Ginger Baker, the legendary drummer, the incredible drummer, mm-hmm. um, is a complete fuck up. And he just moves from country to country and is swinging from branch to branch and tree to tree. And I mean, I'm not like that, but I don't know how I ended up here. I mean, part of it was that Brexit, obviously, was kind of shit and the general um, atmosphere in the UK was like a bit like um, oppressive. And my friend Daniel uh, Leuvenbrook, who ran the record store Roomsty Pumpsty and runs the record label Topnik Aleph, um, offered me a room in his place um, prior to COVID actually. And then, and then I was thinking about it and then COVID happened which is a boring subject to talk about now. Uh, and after the first lockdown, there was an opportunity, a window, and he offered it again. And so I just thought, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's cheaper here. Um, culturally and in the music scene, it's, it's not, I don't really fit in. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I don't think they get in the slightest what I'm doing, but that's okay. Um, so, yeah, it was not... Again, like I think I said in our last interview, in the, the, which we did 75 years ago, that <laughs> none of the label was pre-planned and neither was any of this. So I guess I improvise life. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. It's interesting, I was going to ask you about Berlin, because, you know, I guess from an outsider looking in, it seems like there's a fairly strong infrastructure, you know, that supports independent music from, I guess, pressing plants and distributors and record shops, venues, galleries, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess from a label standpoint, uh, you're saying that that maybe isn't quite your experience in terms of where you fit in within the landscape of Berlin. I guess, I guess maybe to piggyback on that is like, given the challenges that so many artists and labels that have faced over the past few years due to COVID and, you know, like pressing plant delays and shipping delays. I mean, are you seeing any benefits and any advancements, I guess, progress being made from your vantage point in Berlin? Um, Two words. Absolutely not. 
<laughs> no, I mean, the whole thing of, we can get this out of the way right now, the whole thing of pressing records and, and shipping records and delivering records, is it's, it's a complete and utter disaster. Like, it's, it's, you know, I've been doing this for like, what, a long time now, you know, within, within the industry in various different ways, 30 years. And it's, it's inconceivable to imagine that something like this, like, I, you know, literally I had a delivery of a new release this week arrive, which took over two years for them to make. I shall not name their name. <laughs> um, and it, 117 copies had completely damaged sleeves and now I have to make a claim. I've got currently six claims with shipping companies for goods that haven't arrived. But, you know, so the world's gone really wonky and me being here is no benefit in that sense. Like literally the world's gone really wonky. Mm -hmm. uh, wonky world. But uh, what I do like about being here is the government is a little bit less evil than most of the governments in the West and the, the rest. That, that you feel that there's some kind of like compassion towards the populace. Mm -hmm. So that, that's something that I like here. It was, it was attractive to move here. And it's not perfect by any means. And not speaking the language so well means that I don't get so integrated with all the media social cause, which I kind of like that, you know, ignorant holiday that I permanently exist in. Uh, but yeah, you know, I don't know. It's like making vinyls is very difficult now. And this is obviously why I did some CDs recently. I did some cassettes and you just kind of like surf and navigate the, um, the, the problematic scenario. Mm -hmm. Has, has this, the challenges that you mentioned, I mean, has it completely soured uh, your view of operating a label, like to the point where you're like, to hell with this, I'm done? Or do you feel like, like you're mentioning, you're just sort of reevaluating and doing what you can to maintain some semblance of an operation? How sarcastic can I be in this interview? <laughs> I guess be so I can. Given the current state of the world, I've thought about becoming a grave digger, of course. Um, yeah, of course, I want to pack it all in. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I, I said to somebody this week, I'd like to think that I'm not dumb, but I feel dumb doing this mm -hmm. at this point in time. But there's ways around it. And it's like, it's just music and it's just carried on a medium in order to be dispersed and distributed. And that can happen in various ways. So certainly waiting two years to get a vinyl that turns up with one third of the pressing damaged is something that I'm not really interested in repeating for the rest of my life. I was, I would like to become a great writer, a very legendary writer that they talk about in like 15,000 years time, but I, you know, history gets eradicated immediately. So I don't really know if that'll happen, but that's one of my fantasies. The grave digger or the writer, I've got two um, operating fantasies at the moment about what I do after I pack all this in. Sorry. What was the question? <laughs> Oh, I think it's been addressed. I think you got it. <laughs> Is that something that you are spending more time? Because, I mean, I have read a fair amount of your uh, writing and, and essays and stuff, music writing things, like liner notes that you did for, like, the recent Ned Colette reissue, which yeah. I thought was really illuminating uh, for that record, and, and reading uh, that extensive piece that you had written about Henning Christensen uh, within that book. And we're going to talk more about that later in the show here. But I'm wondering if that is something that you would like to pursue uh, more of, or maybe you already are. 
I, I kind of, oh, I've always written, um, and I like it. I think it's the only thing that I'm actually really good at. Um, I, I'm not good, good, but I, I, I think that I'm, I've got some kind of ability to do that. Uh, and I don't write like abstract or experimental. Like I like writing like the Ned Collette thing where it's just like writing, writing. Um, I don't do enough. I mean, I write for work. Sometimes I get um, jobs for writing various things. But yeah, it's something that I, <laughs> in all seriousness, besides my facetiousness, it's something that I, I would consider pursuing. But again, economically, it's a disaster. But, right. but if you've got any writing work for me out there, yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, pick, a, pick a job that's even more, uh, less stable than running a record label. Oh, I got it. Be a writer. Well, I mean, the, the advantage is that I'm not dealing with courier companies and incompetence. I just have me right. and my and my fingers that type out what my brain thinks. And so therefore the tools are basic and I don't have to interact with any of this kind of like, uh, lack of raw materials, worldwide global collapse. Right. So, you know, it's active in that sense. Right, right, true. Well, you know, you put out a couple of solo albums in the past two years and wanted to spend just a little time here discussing your, your latest full-length called Offering, which, you know, I, I feel, I guess, pretty comfortable saying after listening to this one a, a fair amount of times at this point that my favorite and I think your strongest solo work that you've put out so far Um and and I think maybe the most noticeable differences compared to your previous albums was maybe or your previous solo album was maybe that move back to more uh, of a song based approach. And then of course, I guess the use of a, an acoustic guitar more as a sound source, not as an instrument per se. Um, but it, but it notes in the album promo blurb that uh, the album uh, songs about geography and placement and the way people choose to move across the surface of our planet. Just wondering if you'd be willing to maybe share kind of the general headspace that you were in as you went about recording and assembling this new record. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'll give it all away because it's quite explicit. It's quite easy for me to tell what how that came about. It, that record came about really quickly. Again, like like the last one, the solo records under my own name that also happened very quickly it's like i don't sit down and record and make records and then da, da, da. it's just like i just wait and then suddenly something happens and a record is suddenly made so that it, it happened quickly um during my lockdown period <laughs> uh watching um an enormous amount of chris marker's films the uh french filmmaker chris marker who's pretty well known for making La Jete and Sans Soleil. Mm. But outside of La Jete and Sans Soleil, I think at the start of March 2020, I, I found this 10 hour documentary he, he made called The Owl's Legacy, which is a incredible documentary about the origin of Western structures through the, or, through the original Greek uh, formulation mm -hmm. of and that had incredible sound stuff in it. And I, I, I did that thing for John Abbey, um, erstwhile John Abbey did this covered series, remember? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, he asked me to do one and I, I sampled one of the Owl's Legacy, the introduction to the Owl's Legacy. And after that, I just watched pretty much every Chris Marker um, documentary 
every film he makes. I, I really, really like Chris Marker as an artist, as a human being. And so in offering all of the sound sources, so I play a lot of things on that record, like the accordion at the end and the guitar, obviously. But every other sound source is from one source. It's all from Chris Marker's films. He's credited on the back of his sleeve. Um, so that was an obsession of mine. And, and I really like these sounds on his films. So I collaged them together. Or I put them, I just pulled them all out of the films. And some of the films are eight minutes long and some are like, you know, they're all kinds of things. And I thought, wow, the soundtracks are so nuts. Like, what the fuck is this stuff? And obviously I was like, ah, oh, I would love to do this on an ultimate press. But it's like, there's no way I could because it's so like, yeah, how do you contact all these people? Blah, blah, blah. So I, I just done a collage of his soundtracks for my own um, fun. And then I was, I'm putting out this record by Sam Esch, which is this American guy who's completely... Is a complete fucking lunatic and plays acoustic guitar. After that, I bought an acoustic guitar because I was inspired by that. And then I sent some of this stuff to Graham. And then, like, it's a, that record's a collaboration. I mean, Graham edited and assembled the whole final thing. And, you know, obviously, you know that we're friends, but it's like the idea of like songs is something that we're both interested in. The idea of words is something we're both interested in. The idea of like, you know, outside of like generic uh, drone, electroacoustic, experimental music, boring shit, we're interested in the other. So, you know, I sent him a folder of crap and he said, this is sounds really interesting. And he made it into what it is at the end. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that. I mean, was it given your close connection with Graham, was that a thing that you felt very comfortable just saying, here's what I have, you do what you do in terms of the editing process, or was it a lot more back and forth sort of shaping and developing those into songs? No, no. I don't even think it was anything like that. I think, I can't even remember. I think we just, I just sent him, I sent him the kind of like the Chris Marcus stuff, and then I told him that I got an acoustic guitar, and then I recorded with that. And then I think he said records some words and then it's assembled after the fact like the fact that there's songs with lyrics there's no preconceived song with lyrics they're just manufactured in the aftermath sure. and and i like that process and there was no back and forth i think he just went away for three weeks and said right this is what i've done with all of the material that mm -hmm. you uh submitted yeah so so how you're describing it is that what you sent him was really sort of the raw materials. There wasn't sort of a pre-mixed version. Like you had the guitar parts, you had the marker parts, you had now the vocal parts. He was the one that laid and overlaid all this together and edited it. Exactly. It's very much a collaborative record. Okay. That's... Yeah. That's an, yeah, it's an interesting way of working. Is that, is that the first time if, as far as I know, at least it is the first time that you've, handed over your audio to somebody else right everything else you've done prior to that has just been essentially on your own is that correct yeah yeah i would i would say that's correct i mean the other collaborative records like with matthew hopkins or with sholto dolby i kind of did the final thing 
Okay. Uh, but that that one, this this one um, was definitely. I had a and, and a lot, large amount of material, and then Graham just assembled it and said, "Right, boom." And I think I, I disagreed with like one stupid line that I say on the record. And he's like, "Fuck you, you're an idiot. We're keeping that in." <laughs> um, but but I liked it because it's like that kind of idea of like back and forth, back and forth is the idea of like creating perfection amongst two people. But like you say, it's like the willingness to just submit something and then take on board what is returned is a different kind of process again. And the fact that like when I'm saying things and words that there's no real um, like prerogative or like um, inbuilt design and agenda. So the whole thing, you know, it's a, it's a Barosian cut up kind mm. of thing, but it's, it's such an incredible technique, these kind of things that when it came back, I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting because neither myself or Graham are really conscious of what's happening. And then suddenly these things appear and these things appear in song form. And that for me is amazing. The unconscious when exposed is amazing. It's a cliche, but that's what kind of happened. So right. there's Chris Marker material, but it's nothing to do with that now because it's now this. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, let's play a track from the record. I, I picked out the one called Junifer. And anything specific about that one that stands out to you? <laughs> the ghostly, haunted, antiquated... Um, no, but I like the title. Yes, yes. So here again from Mark's latest album offering. It's a track, Junifer. Huh? <laughs> 
Like a speaking of geography and moving across the surface of the planet, you had traveled to the United States a few months back uh, and played a show in Los Angeles, which I find very, very fascinating because uh, if I'm not mistaken, have you even performed a show in Berlin yet? <laughs> um, quickly, the geography and displacement thing was me trying to break down the Western. Me, me arrogantly, individually, through a single fucking record pressed up in 300 copies, <laughs> trying to break down, you know, talk about Uzbekistan as opposed to, you know, somewhere like Berlin. Where we've got a world around us, everybody, <laughs> you all know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did. I played a show in Berlin um, last year. Uh, last year. So last when I got here, a week after I arrived, there was another lockdown. And then it kind of opened up after like, whatever, seven, eight months. And my friend Brett Wag, who runs um, Total Black and runs the store that I work out of here, which is called Sentimental Youth, um, he was organizing a small show at this place uh, here, Arkeoda, which is run by Frank from Casual Plastic. I'm just dropping these names because people are good when they're good and they're fucking killer, those people. Uh, so Brett asked me to play and I did. <laughs> so I did play here. That was my first show and I don't really play. I mean, I never like organized tours or, you know, the idea of having an agent seems so absurd and, you know, but, but if I get asked, it's like, sure, why not? And that was me like, oh, I've got an acoustic guitar, I'm gonna play it. And it was, it was nice because people like came and it was like, you know, people came because they didn't see anything for so long. And obviously the LA thing came about because me and Toby from uh, Henning's son, we had to go to LA to do some work basically. And there was a, a friend of mine in LA who wrote to me six months prior saying that there was a new space that's opened up in LA. If you're this way, let us know, because I can put on a concert there. Um, and the space was actually super amazing. And so this all happened really quickly. It's like, like my record happened to be coming out exactly at that point in time. We had to suddenly go to LA. We had to go to LA to collect some things that we were going to ship over here. That was going to cost like 4,000 euro to ship. But then we realized that the flights are like 80 euro for both of us because everything's so cheap to fly. So we might as well just go there and collect them. I wrote to this guy, he's like, right, boom, we've got a record launch. I mean, this is like, it just happens, these things. Uh, but that was really nice, actually. I, I like that show. I don't know how or why, but I kind of like, maybe it's because it was LA and they've got a history of this stuff, but I, it was like half of the show or like uh, a third of the show was me doing like improvised stand-up comedy um and people laughed so i'm not being arrogant here i think it worked i don't know if one of the audience's members could uh, write on the chat underneath here right now and they could say it was shit i don't know <laughs> i i organized the tuba player to play with me um roper and he came out and started playing his tuba i wanted a sousaphone but he said no no no, you'll get a world war ii tuba and he suddenly came out at one point and i mean it was absolutely fucking absurd and i'm on stage i'm like wow mark you've done really well you're in la you're doing improvised stand-up comedy you're a really successful human being but friends were there and like it was really fun yeah. you know like i, I like fun uh, uh, comedy uh, maybe i like experimental music i don't know <laughs> well, the yeah, the fact that all of that came together and you got to play half a, half a world away is pretty remarkable. 
It was ridiculous. Yes. It was ridiculous whole scenario. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, another thing that you've been doing over, I don't know, the last year or so is you have, I guess, a monthly radio slot on the internet station LYL called The Seventh Night. And I guess I've I've checked out some of those. And I think the one that stood out to me was that one you did recently on the Sydney post-punk scene, I guess kind of spurred on by that negative reaction reissue, which I, I guess I was interested in that record and it was helpful to hear some of the other adjacent music that was going on um, at the time. So I guess maybe we can kind of double up here is I guess, how'd you get involved in that station and maybe speaking more to that scene that, I mean, was sort of close to where you were at in Australia when you were doing your thing back there, but sort of its own kind of peculiar nebulous little world into or unto itself. Uh, That's a great question, David. Thank you. Um, I really liked that show as well. Like I was really happy with that show. I still listen to that show I did. But again, like anything, I think it just all happens by accident. I picked up that negative reaction reissue and I, I really liked it. And I didn't know of that record, yeah? I mean, I knew of Dog Food Productions and M Squared and Terse Tapes. But, you know, this is all like a generation before me. So when I'm growing up, you know, of, but you're doing your own thing, whatever. But I really got obsessed with that negative reaction record. And yeah, it's a TG ripoff, sure. But there's something about it that's very colloquial. It's very Australian. And I like that the, the lead singer, the, the, the poet, the, the guy who's reading his poetry is like Croatian. I found that really interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that nobody knew who the woman was that appears on the record in so I just got like, I, I'm, I don't really listen to a lot of experimental music, but sometimes something will just like, oh, wow, that's really affected me. And so I have a friend called Rob Mason, who's from Melbourne, but he's lived in New York a long time. And he, I know that he's an expert on that scene. I remember he used to come into my record shop in Australia. So I contacted Rob and I looked up, I was just a week of just mad, like if this thing exists, what else exists? You know, it's the same thing as like reading liner notes where they reference. And that radio show, yeah, I put together based on that and I learned a lot very quickly. And the thing with like that scene, so it's the Sydney post-punk scene, which is dominated by uh, M Squared, Severed Heads. Um, but a lot of it for me is this kind of really wacky resident synth pop stuff. And I, so I was always put off. I didn't realize that was this other side underneath. And then I guess the negative reaction record triggered that. Um, <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I think it's kind of mind blowing that, and actually I've got a bar around the corner here where I drink once a week with these old German queer punk friends of mine, my age, and I love it. It's like a sh- shitty, trashy German bar. And, we go that I go there and they we always talk about music and rah 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 and this week well my friend was running the bar so he locked it so that no other people could come in so we listened to Australian punk like Feed Time or or God or Venom Peace Stinger and I played that that mix of mine for a little bit until they shut me off as usual but everybody's like wow so you know it's it's it blows my mind how much you can discover and know so little and there's always something more 
within the past, within the present. It's just like there's so many people on planet Earth that it's it's unbelievable. And stuff gets quantified through media representation, like a review or a front cover. But there's still so much more endlessly to discover. Um, yeah, I like that show. So thank you. The OIL thing happened. I don't know. Somebody contacted me and said, hey, we have this thing. And like NTS didn't want to borrow me, so I went to France instead. <laughs> a way for you to like uh, totally dive into whatever you're currently obsessed with on that given month, then, right? Uh, I always like to do it thematically. I, I don't want to do just like this is a series of things. Not that I don't mind that, but I, at one point I did it thematically, probably because a friend of mine died, so I did tribute. Um, but the next one I was thinking about doing swear words as in lyrics but i'm not sure i've got some bangers like um there's a captain beefheart track that's a fucking killer but i don't know if but i'm interested in swear words i'm interested in comedy definitely mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well you sent over some new stuff that for me to play here from some forthcoming releases that you have coming out on penultimate press so i thought we should maybe highlight some of those before we jump into this next block of music and I guess several of the artists that you that you've sent over are artists that you have worked with uh, to some degree in the past, and but I thought I would start off uh, by uh, playing a track from Mass Balance Volumes, who I'm sure you know are you know they're Mankatoans here. They have roots here in our area. I know them. I know them well. Uh, so I was pleased to see that you were working with them again. So I guess maybe we should talk about that record and maybe highlight quickly just some of the the other ones that you have coming out. Well, I was I was wondering because I, th I I had assumed actually that you already knew about their new record. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was aware um, of it. Yes, I knew. I haven't heard it though. Ah, okay. I was wondering. I, th I was wondering. That record is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. It's just fantastic. I love that record that they've made. I don't know them personally. I obviously put out the last one, and I know their history to a degree. But that new record is like, it's so incredible. I, I'm super proud to put out that record. Yeah, I think it's very special. It's crazy. And like, there was reviews of the last one. It's like, oh, we entered, we put it on, it's depressing. It's like, why well, ever get But But this new record, like, yeah, I mean, I like Nico's Marvel Index. I like when you can go deep into, but it's a beautiful, romantic, tragic, insane torch song it's so killer mm -hmm. uh when that vinyl comes out which is probably going to be what year are we in now <laughs> 14 years time you'll hear the new master i i choose things to come out on whatever format at the moment you know because but i like that one to be on vinyl um the, the sam ash reissue is this um like mike rep put out Mike Rep Associated Artist and Tom Lax is around that scene. Just these like two cassettes, which is this absolutely insanely amphetamine infueled blues, wild, what the fuck acoustic music, <laughs> which I really like as well. That was kind of the inspiration behind me buying the acoustic guitar. <laughs> is that. I was trying to do the Sam Nash record before all this madness and I'm still trying to do it. But that was honestly like, I, I just listened to the sound mesh thing and I was like, right, I'm going I'm to buy an acoustic guitar. Um, and I think what else I sent you is like, 
the Jerome Notinger Anthony Pateras record, which will be on CD, compact disc. Um, and that's a follow-up from the vinyl I did, which has both of them doing electronics as opposed to Anthony playing piano. Uh, Anthony's an old friend, Jerome's an old friend. The other one is um, Robert Piotrowicz, which is a really good friend of mine from Poland who has the, the, the most killer, but, but really astute, darkest sense of humor of most people I know. But he's Polish and he's in the middle of this confrontational situation. And he was actually here at my place two weeks ago. And Lord, he makes me laugh. But that is kind of like, he will be able to explain it better, but a, I guess a synthetic organ thing that is half laconic and half serious. Yeah, and I think the only other one uh, that we need to mention is there was another Comer record uh, in there too. Not a record, but a new cassette too. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a follow up to the last one we did, and I really, really love those guys. Um, and <laughs> that was the thing I was like, I can't do this on vinyl; it's killing me. I can't. I just can't. And then they were like, Yeah, yeah, cool. Let's do a cassette. So I think the next ones will be the Kamora and the Sam Esh. And then the batch after that will come after, and that will come after. Mm-hmm. We see. Yeah, right. Well, let's jump into this block of music here again, starting with Maths, Balance, Volume, and the track Stay from their forthcoming LP, Cycles of Tonight. Thank you. 
Henning Christensen is perhaps best known for his role in the avant-garde and I guess his ties to the Fluxus movement. I was also quite interested to learn that he came out of a proper music conservatory background, I guess doing a couple of stints at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Copenhagen, uh, both in the early 50s and then in the early 60s. Um, you know, he studied clarinet as a major. He studied music theory and composition. But I guess in reading uh, Mark's essay called Nature and Culture about Henning's work and history, it sounded like that Namjoon Pak performance that he helped organize uh, was sort of maybe a turning point uh, for Henning uh, in terms of like maybe breaking away from this conventional path of like orchestra halls and, and standard composition, I guess. Is that a fairly accurate take on it? Or maybe what were some of the other things that were happening? Uh, nearly accurate. Uh, the main uh, performance where he chose the other way was at um, a bar called uh, Sergeant uh, something ah, in Copenhagen. Lauritz Bechent. And Lauritz Bechent was uh, like a jazz club in Copenhagen at that time, early 60s. And he chose to take his client there, make a concert, you know, announce a concert, but then the concert didn't happen because he only opened up his box of the client, closed it again, opened it up, cleaned the client, closed it again, and so on, and so on. People freaked out and, and, and yelling and all that. So it was an anti-piece, and he never touched his client after that ever again. <laughs> so that was absolutely. Uh, I don't know if that was before or after Pike did the Louisiana uh, gig. I think the Louisiana gig was before uh, the show in um, Fluxor Morganum in uh, Copenhagen, Nicolai Church in 62. So I think it must have been around that time that everything happened for him. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But there, but there was a fair of other, uh, fair amount of other stuff that was that he was involved in, from like, I guess, publishing things, doing yeah. art, writing about stuff. I mean, he kind of had his, uh, for lack of a better expression, his thumb and many thumbs in the pie, or whatever, or however that expression goes, right? I mean, he was doing a lot of stuff in addition to music around that same time, correct? Yeah, absolutely, he was very closely interested in. Uh... Like he went to Darmstadt, I think in 61 or 62 also in that period. And they had Stockhausen uh, teaching or lectures and they, they were bored about that. They were instantly against. It's really weird because he didn't like that idea of uh, how Stockhausen was dealing with music. He wanted to create his own style, you know, to be his own Stockhausen very early, I think. So a, a competent uh, person, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, he came from this very classical uh, background. He learned like uh, also how to write notes, you know, how to make scores, all that. Really, really trained, 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 and he was trained, trained, trained to sit in orchestras and play his clarinet in the radio orchestra of of Denmark. And he was so tired of playing the same stuff. All over again, all over again, all over again. So we had to, yeah, mm -hmm, break mm -hmm. out of that. Right. Well, you know, there there was that breakaway from it for sure. With uh, 
I guess some of the more stuffy concert hall elements that you're referring to. But I guess it was never totally like a full clean break by any means, because if you look, you know, throughout the 1970s, I mean, he was still composing, you know, a fair amount of music for films, you know, for programs uh, on, on Danish radio. So I guess, I guess, was that out of sheer financial necessity that he had to do that, you know, like just to pay the bills, so to speak, or, and maybe how would you characterize that music that he was creating during the 70s compared to yeah, uh, the other It was stuff? a combination of uh, living on this island where we are now, you know, have to pay the bills. My mother didn't have any income. She was a painter uh, and also taking care of kids like me. Uh, so he has to pay the bills. So he has to organize how do I do that? Because before that, he was touring around for 10 years with boys and, uh, you know, yeah, nonstop traveling, living in, in Dusseldorf in a long period. And so for him coming to the island, he has to get money. And the money, how he gets money is to make film music because there's money in that. So it's very easy for him to, to do orchestra pieces for film or or just orchestra film uh, radio shows. So uh, that was his main income. And he was also very interested in Eric Satie because Boyce was a big fan of Eric Satie. And that is why Henning chose to go back to the roots through Eric Satie and make more folklore uh, music, you know, more people, that music that people would like to listen to because he was in the 60s only destroying music more or less. That was a saying. And then he wanted to create music again mm-hmm. to make it popular. Right, you know, right. instead of rock music, he hated rock music, you know, hated drums and all that shit. <laughs> so uh, he was, yeah, very radical in that way for that time, I think. Maybe you could help explain here, and I think we're going to address this maybe a little down the road, but there was a recording with your brother, I guess, his his son, yeah. who was involved in like a heavy metal band, right? Yeah, exactly. And was sort of well known or well regarded as a heavy metal musician and those two performed and let's just say it pissed off the locals is that a yeah, fair fair exactly exactly i was there i was very small and i remember like yesterday how they were pissed off because it was extremely loud <laughs> you know the performance was live on danish radio extremely loud and they were you know just pissing them off that was the whole idea about it Mm-hmm. Because the audience yeah. mostly stoned on on uh, mushroom trips and and stuff like that. It was really crazy. Yeah, but, but the other thing, the other thing is, you, you know, your father's like, "Big brother is watching you." I yeah, mean, you, yeah. yeah, they were the you, yeah. <laughs> All these freaks with long hair, leather jackets. They were the you, you know, and they were used to like uh, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin at that time, you know. And totally, my brother was in a band like that, you know, like Krauthorp kind of Danish, uh, top seven, uh, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so he uh, he broke with all his friends and all the audience with this performance and never came back to the stage. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. Crazy, yeah, because he created that festival. He created like all that music scene around. They were touring nonstop, even on Greenland. At an American airbase, you know, with the band. Wow. Uh, at Tula Airbase, they played for the U.S. Army. <laughs> wild. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, in one of the interviews in that, I guess, Freedom is Around the Corner publication that uh, Blank Forms put out in conjunction with that exhibition that they that they did a few years ago, Henning 
they're stated in there, he says, there is, of course, also the problem today of restoration. Uh, one should let it be. One should just pursue the idea and not the product. He says, Fluxus is a wonderful opportunity for that. So I was curious to ask you, given how extensive his archives are and and how little of his work was ever heard or viewed publicly while he was alive, is it safe to say that Henning was more content with just sort of living this creative life as opposed to needing any outside validation or needing to create something with a specific you know, release in mind as a product. Absolutely. He didn't give a shit about people if they liked it or not. He just did it. That was the whole idea about it, you know. The whole idea was the idea. The idea is the idea, and the idea is the red thread through the whole thing, creating new ideas, new ideas, new ideas. And that's why he was on Moon hiding in a way, you know, alone with his phone, calling to his friends, and he was creating all this stuff down here and then he went out extremely a lot to Germany where he was performing a lot in Hamburg or Berlin uh, throughout the 80s especially because he was also teaching there Mm -hmm. with the students and he was involving students and he liked working with people that was extremely important for him Mm -hmm. to work with new people all the time and invite them here to the farm and develop ideas and yeah like yeah, that. Yeah. I guess for you, having grown up surrounded by parents who were both, I mean, highly creative, producing work across different mediums, uh, you know, was that something that you felt motivated to do early on as well? Did you, did, did I guess, did you take an interest in, say, like the music and sound work that your father was creating when you were younger? Or was it like, what the hell is happening in that room next to us? <laughs> <laughs> did, it, did it scare the hell out of you? One, yeah, there was one with the wolves in 1985 when he was uh, sampling together the wolf from... Uh, he, we went, you know, for three months to uh, outside of Rome and uh, he was every day recording with uh, Lorenzo Mami at the zoo of Rome. So they went there early in the morning to record all the animal sounds and the one sound he really liked was the wolf. So every night when we were sleeping uh, for a long period, we have this wild wolf full blast in our dreams waking up because he had to have that. Uh, he was obsessed about that voice. Uh, yeah, right. I'm trying to think, is the wolf something in your immediate area, did you say? that is it something that you see or come across quite frequently? Uh, nope. Uh, <laughs> no wolves around here. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. it would be nice. Yeah. Uh, but um, no, I think it was just the sound uh, of animals. He was super interested in the sound of animals early on. He had canaries when he was like three years old mm-hmm. uh, in the cellar in Copenhagen uh, from the landlord. He was, and also rabbits. So he was very much into having these animals around and recording them and performing with them and, and all that. So they were part like a instrument for him right. you know so like the wind blowing in a special way and yeah. the rooftop metal uh, crushing and then he said this is the best concert ever you know <laughs> i love that one performance where he was in the i guess the conductor or the uh, the, the orchestra section below the stage and with him were like 
30 chickens. Yeah, I was there. It was in Rome at uh, Teatro Olimpico at Tiefland. René Block organized that. Uh, Philip Corner was on a piano while playing around up there, running around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmett Williams was on the stage, Namjoon Pike and, and John Cage was calling, uh, trying to call. I think Cage couldn't figure out the number to Italy or something. <laughs> it didn't get through. But I think Namjoon Pike had a long talk. I think we have recordings of that, actually. Yeah. That's just really, like, really nice. Yeah. That, that was a really nice show yeah. with the chickens, chicken farm in the orchestra hall, yeah. Uh, just yeah, yeah just cool. the just the thought of that is so yeah. so yeah. intriguing to me but well yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna play an excerpt from i guess one of the latest releases to come out from the the archives it's called good day mr orwell green your ear the, the the performance that we mentioned just a little bit ago um but the, the photos of henning with his ear painted green uh is what immediately springs to mind w- when i think of him and his work and and he would state something along the lines of, I guess, like green uh, being nature, or the green is sort of a symbol of essentially listening to the music of nature. And you were just bringing that up with the, the, the sound of the outdoors, the sound of animals. But I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate, I guess, on the significance of the green ear year and maybe the, the personal and political underpinnings behind that statement. It's very clean because it's George Orwell, and uh, yeah, he Henning I think wanted to listen to the nature and had this radical idea of this person that was triggering a revolution through painting his ear green, and then he had like a little like a like a barber's chair in a little village called uh, Horsens in South Denmark. And for 10 kroner, you can get in there and you can get your ear green painted. And people walking around in that, that little <laughs> village with green ears, you know. And uh, yeah, what you could do with that, you know, and listen to nature and listen to and be weird, uh, like a disease, uh, you know. Yeah, I think he was really into that uh, political idea of, of the green ear. And, and was this something that he legitimately... Uh, carried on for a year. Was the ear painted uh, for a year? No, the pe- green was uh, the ear was not green in the whole year, but the, the, he did drawings for a whole year. Yeah. I can tell you, yeah, yeah, a lot and lot and lot of acrylic. Uh, no, uh, what is it called? Watercolor uh, drawings of green ear. This green ear, that the green ear was suddenly in jail. Then the green ear came out of the jail. <laughs> then the green ear was yeah. like this whole like a cartoon kind of uh, a free posters of this green ear stuff. You know, <laughs> so it sort of it. Yeah. yeah dominated his his thinking or kind of a focal point for a a long stretch of time, huh? Yeah, that was like Danish Radio made a show in uh, Louisiana, this museum, and, and uh, Magritte had a show there, and Henning was explaining with his green ear about that he was exactly like <laughs> Magritte, and that was exactly why he had a green ear. The green ear could much better understand what was great with the hats and the pipes and everything. That was perfect match. <laughs> Well, why don't, why don't we jump into, uh, again, an excerpt here from that uh, new recording. Again, good day, Mr. Orwell, Green Ear Year. 
Big Brother Watch You. Big Brother Watch You. Storebror holder øje med dig. Watch you. Big brother. Watch you. Store bror. Holder Thank you. 
Henning collaborated with a number of different artists, and but I guess probably his most lasting and, and, and fruitful one was probably with Joseph Boys. And I guess, unfortunately, it seems like in terms of art history, and you'll have to forgive my really poor analogy here, but uh, Boys seemed like maybe the lead singer that got all the attention, and maybe Henning was like the, the, the rhythm section in the backdrop. <laughs> That yeah. no, that nobody knew who it was, Absolutely. you know. Even though, like, when my goodness, when you listen to those recordings and and you just hear how striking and truly captivating and central the the sound work and the music that he created was to those performances. I mean, like that to me is so utterly fascinating. So I guess as as more of Henning's archives have been available, has it been? rewarding for for I guess the both of you just to see this reevaluation of of Henning's contribution within I guess the whole Fluxus movement and beyond that absolutely because Henning said always he was carrying the performances of, of boys you know carrying with the sound it's the sound is carrying the performances mm-hmm. that's it you know like uh, when you have an exhibition you have sound in the exhibition the sound is carrying the the, the pictures and that is what Henning was interested in, sound pictures, you know. And that is why I think it's uh, really funny that boys get all that attention, even with the green violin that uh, he claims that he certainly did it. Uh, we have uh, yeah, found in the archive all the documents that he, Henning, created the green violin, you know. Mm-hmm. Mark, Absolutely. I- 
Yeah. Yeah, Mark, I have a, a follow-up to you because I think for me, I first became aware of Henning's work through that initial Kai uh, LP, and then later, of course, the subsequent things that you've put out on Penultimate Press. So I guess given how limited uh, his stuff was out there, how did you uh, get connected with his music? How did you discover it? And I guess how did you and Toby cross paths and start working on this together? Um, that's, I was living in a house in um, Hackney, uh, Stoke Newington in London, uh, and sharing a house with a friend, Dinesh, who records and performs under the name Acolytes. And he just came into my room one day and said, you might like to listen to this. And it was um, Symphony Natura, which was put out by Slow Scan, which is another kind of pseudo dodgy release. Uh, and I loved it. I just like, what the fuck is this? And I, at that point, I was just in the, um, uh, the genesis of my friendship with Graham. And I mentioned that and he's like, oh, yeah, I am a big Henning fan and blah, blah, blah. But then I found that Kreutz music um, cassette on Discogs before um, um, music economy got out of control and you couldn't afford anything. It was quite cheap. It was like 100 euro. And I got that. And I knew Ursula Block from coming to Berlin. I, I, I live in Berlin now, but I've been coming to Berlin my whole life. And I knew Ursula Block when she ran Galba Music. So I wrote to her and she put me in touch with uh, Bjornstein, who put me in touch with Tobian. And then that's why me and Graham did the split release of Kreutz music because it was an unheard Henning record. I remember Graham saying, oh, Mark, there must be like a, a, a box of cassettes under the bed somewhere of what this guy has recorded. And I didn't realize that his um, contemplation of a box of cassettes would turn out to be 1000 plus magnetic tapes, different media craziness uh of what it actually turned out to be and the good things are that a there's so much material and b that i met somebody like toby that we're lifelong friends <laughs> it's like the operation in investigation with the underground kind of culture or current or political philosophy is fantastic because you end up in situations like this yeah um I guess I wanted to spend some time here discussing the archives themselves and I guess what that work has been like in terms of organizing and cataloging what he left behind. And I guess first, just given what you just said there, Mark, I mean, there is a considerable amount of material that he went left behind. And I think, Mark, you had mentioned something in that that essay that I referenced earlier that, you know, at that point, this would have been like 2018, that you had spent, you know, almost a decade listening through stuff and you had maybe scratched the surface and heard like 25% of what was there. So I guess I wanted to ask you, and maybe Toby, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you here, is like, uh, where do you stand today in terms of your familiarity and just sort of your grasp of, of what's there? Do you have a pretty good handle on what's left behind? Oh, I know exactly how much that's left behind. I mean, uh, thousands is a bit uh, big uh, word, yeah, but there's 400 magnetic tapes that we got digitalized. No, and then we have uh, like uh, dad tapes, uh, 200 maybe, and cassette tapes, maybe 500. That's so, more than a thousand. Yeah, it's more than a thousand. We've got over a thousand. <laughs> and also VHS tapes, like uh, 200 around. Performances, you know, 
that I also filmed when I was a teenager or other people filmed and yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a lot. So maybe it's even more than Mark said. The thing is, and the point is, and what you were asking earlier, David, is like, it's interesting. It's interesting for me. It's like within his lifetime, um, Toby's father, he released what? Like eight records. Yeah. But in private, he was making this enormous volume of recordings. So it, why? And like, did he do that because he didn't give about a, a, a shit about the physical object, the reproduction of the information, because it's only about ideas? Or did he knowingly do that to be antagonistic in a friendly way that it would be discovered post you know, mm-hmm. and this question is for you, Toby. Yeah, I don't know. It's a very difficult question. He was very upset that he was not played more in the Danish radio. I know that because he was complaining about that. He was complaining about, yeah, also that Boyce Estate didn't want to have anything to do with him or people were not bringing out his records and shit like that. But he was also not doing anything to get make it happen, you know. He was just sitting there and waiting and drinking red wine, you know, and smoking <laughs> his pipe, you know. And that's, yeah, maybe it was a good thing that he actually passed away so that could open up for us, you know, my brother and I, to to get this more out, you know, because he was sitting there like, I don't want to keep everything out. And, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe it was a good thing, you know. Yeah. And, um, well, for, but in, it's work, yeah. in, in that regard, I'll, I'll finish this because this is quite interesting, I think, is that the operation of his music production was in art world. So yeah. there's a conflict yeah. there's a conflict with uh, these other publications through art means. So he wasn't necessarily, when he got avant-garde and radical, operating within this underground DIY pub reproduction of experimental music. So he's kind of trapped in this kind of like limbo, no-go zone, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He very early went to art instead, like turning his face into art instead of into music, because yeah. he found out that the scene in Copenhagen was turning his uh, him away in 1977, 1979. He made this big TV opera, TV opera, main time Danish television. There was only one channel in Denmark at that time. He couldn't turn to another channel. So there was this crime TV opera and there was a huge fiasco. Like the main newspaper had hitting it's a hole in the ground, <laughs> horrible, blah, blah, blah. When we are looking at it today, it's the most genius thing I've ever seen on television. You know? <laughs> all it was hand painted, all the stage settings, the people were singing like fat guys, small woman, you know, it's like completely insane, the whole setup. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. It's about uh, not being at the right time and the you know being in a different time or I don't know something like that. You know, given given that as we were talking about, he seemed more interested in just the process over the product. Did did he leave behind work that was easy for you to discover what it was? Me by by this means just like 
labeling and identifying things, or has that been just a heck of a lot of work for your part just to decipher what it was? He was very organized, very organized, and everything was very good labeled. We had a woman here, student, and she uh, organized all of it, you know, and rated down uh, in a Excel arc. And uh, after that, we could uh, get all the tapes uh, numbered. She also did that, and then the tapes came to this guy in Aarhus, which is a sound engineer. And he was making all this then. So, okay. Yeah. I guess one, one of my favorite and probably the most concise descriptions of Henning's work was provided by Ute Wasserman in, in one of the interviews in, in that book that I mentioned. And, and I'll just pardon the lengthy quote here, but she says, I love that his art was an everyday experience, an inversion of hierarchies, that he abandoned traditional concert halls, used musical instruments as sound objects and everyday objects as musical instruments. And I share with him being present in different music scenes, but at the same time, all the aspects of the work are connected. Composition, interpretation, installation, collaborations, drawings, open scores, interesting bird song and animal sounds. Freedom is around the corner. And I guess for both of you, I guess, what is your biggest takeaway? And this is, I know, a large question to tackle. But what has been your biggest takeaway about this body of work as you contend with it? Yeah, that's a good one. No, it's exactly to carry on. You know, that idea about freedom is around the corner and what you just mentioned. I think uh, commercial music is extremely boring. You know, art is uh, also commercial art is extremely boring. So uh, why not just create your own shit, you know, and not be a part of that whole movement and be and be true to yourself and and true to what Henning did, you know, just do it yourself. No uh, other labels can bring out this stuff now. You just do it, you know, it's, yeah. For me, um, that all the other kind of like um, 20th century, like kind of like um, radical avant-garde had this kind of like manifesto agenda thing. For Henning's work, it just says and allows you to really just like, just be yourself. Don't show off, don't pretend, allow everything. And it did it in a less kind of like um, overtly manifesto philosophical way of somebody like John Cage or whatever, where there's a real kind of like agenda behind the idea of freedom. Henning was just like, fuck it, let's just go hang out with sheep. Let's just like do any, you know. So there's this kind of residual freedom that I think lasts a little bit longer. Maybe because like Torbjorn said, he's less involved with the, the the machination of industry that he really went to an island and just allowed things to be and and didn't present stuff didn't release stuff didn't perpetually try to advertise himself it's just like can't we just be a little bit more normal and human so for me that fundamental philosophy has been incredibly influential mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess the, the kind of to bring things to an end here is the first release that you put out on the archives was actually an album called Save the Nature, Use Fluxus, The Box Parking Lot Los Angeles, which was a, a live happening, right? A performance that, Toby, you had helped organize that was a part of a larger exhibition of, of Henning and your mother Ursula's uh, work. Um, 
but I guess this performance brought together different artists connected to to Henning's work, kind of a intergenerational approach that you went about. So I was wondering, well, first, and you also included some of the archival recordings within the performances themselves. So I was wondering if you could maybe just describe how that unfolded uh, during the course of the six hours that it happened. And maybe if you felt like that was something worthwhile as a way to showcase Henning's work and maybe just to keep the spirit of alive where you could have him, people engaging with, uh, you know, newer artists that could bring in stuff like that. Absolutely. That was the whole idea, just to uh, make an open box and people could throw in uh, ideas through a timeline, you know. So there was a timeline where I was performing, there was a timeline where Mark was performing, there was a bit like mixing the whole thing together and then there was this and that. So it was uh, very uh, like how Henning was doing performances. Henning was always with Björn, uh, his friend, doing performances mostly six hours or you know not only one day maybe more days and, and, and yeah so that is also where time where you can really stretch out time and find all this uh, moments together whether it's jamming where it's uh, suddenly something new happens and it's uh, going a new course a new direction and that is really interesting i think mm-hmm. to give loose you know um yeah. yeah, it's like the original idea of Fluxus. And, and you, you have to be aware, maybe, obviously, you know, David, I guess, but Henning wasn't officially delegated with Fluxus movement, right. but he ran with Fluxus as an idea. And that performance in LA was the idea of like everything's in flux. You just rework and rework, and it's a, it's a tool that's uh, passed on throughout time. And and we don't look at it like an archive as in it's like dust off the cobwebs reproduce then it's presented and then we're done it's this kind of moving forward influx thing and that la show was you will agree Toby, was really fantastic absolutely i mean paul he just uh paul mccarthy just found a piece of wood like a couple of minutes before he had to perform he didn't know what to do but he found the wood and then he just began banging with that wood on a uh, like a metal uh, container at the door where people were trying to get in and out and manically banging with that piece of wood. That was his. That was his idea. Right. <laughs> that was yeah. it. Yeah, yeah well, it was fantastic. Well, to head into this last block of music here, I'm actually going to start uh, Toby with an excerpt from your. Uh, contribution here to that to that record and to that performance and then I'm going to follow it up with something that Mark passed along uh, an excerpt from a forthcoming release Um, uh, the track's called The Reality is a Ghost in My Mind and the release is called Penthesilia I think I hope I said that correctly what could you just maybe explain what that new release is going to be or what that what era that comes from well Penthesilia is this Aztec uh, queen which kills her lover and gets insane. So uh, this is a theater piece by uh, uh, La Cetera de Babele, uh, a theater group from uh, Rome, uh, Carla uh, Tattoo and uh, Carlo Quattucci, and he made the music for them when they were performing in uh, 84 in, in Berlin, Hebel Theater at Rosenfest, and also again, in Italy in 86 at Teatro Olimpico. So Henning was making this music uh, for their pieces. And it's a piece about uh, Heinrich von Kleist. He was uh, making a 
opera about this Penicillia, and this is like a, their version of that opera. Uh, and uh, reality is a ghost in my mind. I think it's one of uh, Heinrich von Kleist's uh, titles, isn't it, Mark? I think he, he had that. And it's like Heinrich von Kleist wrote this in, when is it? Like, it's 18th century. Yeah, it's like classical time. Like, like classic it's, it's super feminist. Yeah. It's really radical theater piece by Henry von Kleist. Uh, incredible thing. And both Ursula and Henning were obsessed with this story by Kleist. Um, and so Ursula made artworks based around it. Henning, throughout this period, 10 years or something, made a piece of work. So there's a double LP of what Tobin was saying was performed in Berlin. And then we're doing actually a five CD of the piece from Teatro Olimpico in Italy. So it's a, it's one of the biggest pieces in the Henning Christensen archive. Probably the biggest piece. Okay. The largest work he did. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll play an excerpt of that to kind of take things out. But, uh, man, you guys, thanks so much. This has been a pleasure talking to both of you guys. Yeah, I, lo I love Zoom, um, Torby, and you, David. It's always fun. <laughs> Well, let's jump into this piece here. This is, again, Toby's uh, piece called The New Sound of the Living Dead.
that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I'd like to thank Mark and Toby once again for their time and willingness to chat with me. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this episode, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase, in most cases, either digital or physical copies. I'd also encourage you to peruse and check out the other titles that Penultimate Press and the Henning Christensen Archive have available and to support their efforts in whatever way that you can. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple weeks with another new episode. But until then, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>